Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Nadja Swart here with my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts, and we have an excellent show coming up this evening in which Alec Hogg speaks to Patrick Melly of the Greater Cape Town Civic Alliance to unpack where in the process the Western Cape is to get independence from the rest of South Africa. You'll also be hearing from Capitec Chief Executive Officer Gary Furi, who's going to talk about the benefits that Capitec customers receive from Capitec's Diskem and Baby City partnership. Furi will also unpack Capitec's partnership with SA Home Loans and the aftermath of South Africa's Week of Shame. Then my business colleague Justin will be speaking to Small Talk Daily's analyst Anthony Clark about independent school network Kiro to discuss the reasons for Kiro's drop in headline earnings as well as the prospects of the business going forward. Then as our guest commentator this evening, we'll have Magnus Haystack of Brenthurst Wealth Management. But first, here are the news headlines. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. New names have emerged as candidates for the cabinet as President Saul Ramaphosa continues consultations to shore up his executive. According to Business Day, the matter was discussed but not finalized by the ANC top leadership on Monday, but the Tripartite Alliance which includes Kasatu and the SA Communist Party, has not yet been consulted. Staff in the presidency have said that some ministers have been asked to prepare handover reports. Among the names being considered is former Deputy Finance Minister Monli Gungubele as minister in the presidency and Limpopo Health MEC Pofi Ramatuba and Deputy Health Minister Joe Fala for the health portfolio. While there is a push from within the government for Fala to take over the health department, Ramatuba has surpassed expectations in terms of the vaccines, vaccine rollout in Limpopo. Gungubele is an ANC veteran with the close confidence of Ramaphosa. ESCOM has said that it is seeking to appoint advisors on how to restructure itself into three separate units, a reorganization that was proposed to let it better deal with an untenable debt burden. The separation of the Johannesburg-based company into transmission, generation and distribution units was first raised by President Sol Ramaphosa more than two years ago. The company has since reduced its liabilities but is still struggling to manage almost 400 billion rand in debt and has subjected the country to intermittent power cuts since 2005. The so-called request for proposals is in addition to an earlier notice seeking advisors on how to fund the closing and repurposing of a number of the company's coal-fired power stations into sites that could generate electricity from natural gas or renewable resources. The National Prosecuting Authority has raised alarm about former President Jacob Zuma's latest bid for a corruption trial acquittal being heard in court, weeks after his imprisonment for contempt of court was followed by unrest that left hundreds of people dead and cost billions of rands in damage. The former president's lawyers have, however, told the Peter Maritzburg High Court that he refuses to consent to what they contend would be an unconstitutional and illegal virtual hearing of his special plea application. The NPA says there is no reason to risk security or COVID-19 infection by holding the hearing in person, but says the case must go on no matter what, in person or not. Zuma's special plea is for the entire case to be dropped and for him to be acquitted of all charges because he claims the NPA is biased against him. Justin, what's been going on in the markets? Thanks, Nods. Uh, the JSE All Share Index was flat at 68,800. In the currency markets, the rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 40 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 10 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 11 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,808 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is lower at $72.60 a barrel, and Bitcoin is also down at 550,000 rand per coin. Tencent led a stocks route after Chinese state media decried the spiritual opium of games, prompting the company to broach a ban for kids and triggering fears Beijing will set its next sights on the world's largest gaming arena. Tencent fell as much as 10% before finishing the day just over 5% lower. On the JSE, Naspers and Process followed lower by a similar percentage. High school education provider Curro announced that headline earnings per share, the primary indicator of performance for JSE-listed businesses, will fall by around 50% against the prior period. 
Curra's 1.5 billion rand rights issue in 2020, creating more shares in issue, was the primary driver for lower earnings per share. The shares down around 5% on the news. Precious Metals provider Royal Buffer King Platinum announced record interim numbers for its half-year financials. Despite the strong performance, the commodity counter missed expectations, with the share falling sharply, around 7% for the day, whilst other precious metals producers were slightly down on lower commodity prices. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Magnus Haystek has shifted from his usual Wednesday slot with us, but it's a good day to do it because, my goodness, there's a lot to talk about. Starting off with Naspers, you've been amongst those who've been warning us that Naspers is such a huge part of retirement portfolios in South Africa. And lo and behold, uh, the Beijing government this morning started calling Tencent, or its major part of its business, Opium for the mind. Now, anyone who knows a little bit about Chinese history will realize that that's a massive insult given the opium wars between China and Britain and the reason why they occurred and, and the, the, the harm that still exists uh, within China uh, or distaste about that because it, it made a lot of people into opium addicts. addicts. So if you've got uh, your central government calling a, a side of your business Opium for the mind or spiritual opium, as it's also uh, been, was also described. Uh, not surprising to see 10 cent share price take a 10% hit. It seems like the Chinese government is talking in code to its people and to the markets by throwing in words like opium. I mean, I would imagine that in the South African context, if you use the word apartheid and you use that in a statement about a company or a person, it evokes the same kind of reaction and it has an honest, a very sinister overturn for, uh, for the tech companies and especially Nasdaq because you have to be uh, a very specialist in Chinese communication. What are they trying to say? Because it is a statement and it follows a sequence of attacks on, 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 on companies in the tech space. If you, I tried to explain to someone last week about a Chinese company in the education space, which had a hundred billion market cap, a hundred billion dollar market cap, the one day and the next day it, it, it was worth zero. One can see that you know it's not a joke that possibly, as as Peter Yun asks and Sean Pichet, that Nasdaq or ten cent can be worth zero. And what does that do to trillions of rands in, in various investments, pension funds, RAs? And 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 us person process, it's 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 there must be a strategy behind it. The, the government, the Chinese government, must be playing a game, and they want something out of it. But what it is right now, I would um, I I really do not know. I would imagine that Chris Becker and his people are trying to decipher this and having chats with the Chinese government. What do you want? What is it? What you want to say? And what can we do to alleviate the pressure? But it is having an impact. On the JSC with its heavy weighting and the old saying in investment markets, risk is not a factor until it is a factor. And, and now in the case of Nostbus, it is a factor. And those VIEs as well. Suddenly there's a focus on the reality that you don't own a share of Tencent, the company. You own a share of the cash flows uh, through a contract, which the Chinese government has said before, is an illegal contract, something that comes through the Cayman Islands. So the risk is very, very high, uh, not just to 10 cents operating businesses, uh, but also to shareholders in the company. You've got to wonder why what NASPERS uh, executives are saying to themselves now. They must be kicking themselves and saying, if only we had unbundled these 10 cent shares, in the same way as I suppose many South African investors would be saying, if only we'd sold our NASPERS shares when we saw the Chinese government starting to go after capitalists almost a year ago. If only, Alec, we have done a lot of things in our life and we had known what markets would do. We would be extremely rich, comfortable, and, and, but we don't. We don't know this. And, and I think this, it is not a, a story that seems to be going away suddenly. Because it's not only a South African thing. As I said to you last week, I was watching the many programs on Bloomberg, CNBC, discussing American analysts trying to decipher what the Chinese are doing. And I think uh, Nussbass and Bob von Dijk and those people are having very intense discussions 
with their Chinese uh, counterparts, what exactly does it mean? But the share price is already telling us something. It's down about 30 to 40 percent from its various peaks, both process and NASPERS. And we as a company, although we don't directly deal in direct shares, we have been inundated with our clients asking us what to do with NASPERS. And at this point in time, we tell them we don't know. We simply don't know whether whether that's good or bad. We're trying to decipher it ourselves, and we're actually trying to you know, have a Zoom meeting with Pete Fillion and playing the interview that we did, you did with him last week, which was very powerful. We're actually sending it to our clients and say, listen, see what Pit Fillion has been saying and doing, and, um, and, 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 and even that's not clear-cut. So that makes markets, and that keeps us busy, Alec. It keeps us employed. Yeah, I can tell you our biggest story by some distance this morning is Pitt's uh, article that he wrote for us, particularly on the whole NASPERS process issue. There's fair warning there. We move on to other issues, though, and, and something else which is very much in the news in our community is the whole story of Cape independence. Magnus, where do you stand on this? Because I spoke to another person today, uh, and uh, we, we're going to be uh, having that interview a little later in the program, Patrick Melly. And he is with the Cape Independence Movement. There seem to be a whole bunch of them. Uh, uh, just as a little uh, forsmarky, he says that the Freedom Front Plus is in favor now, officially, of Cape Independence, which is uh, the first political party outside of the Little Cape Party, which never really had any seats, um, to have stood or put their stake in the ground. What, what do you think about all this? Well, Alec, I happen to be down in the Cape at the moment. I'm at Vazavi, where I have my little apartment. And I've been talking to a couple of people on the ground in the gym this morning, and I was chatting to Ragnet. And, and the hotel next to Vazavi uh, is normally is empty this time of the year. It is stuck a block of people who have flown down to come and look at property. And, and, and it's all around. Wherever you speak, you are just saying, People are selling up in the north, whether it's Queensland, Natal, Pretoria, uh, Johannesburg. They are looking at, at, at the Western Cape and probably the, the Southern Cape as an alternative. Whether it politically will be able to separate in, uh, and become an independent state, I don't think will happen. But I think there might be pressure to give it far more federal powers to run their own affairs independ- uh, independently, perhaps raise some taxes which it can control because, again, in the South African context, where, where can it end up all with the central government losing control over many, many functions of government? So there's a very strong emotional feeling about, yes, we want to be independent. One has to be a bit more careful. Uh, we are codependent on each other. But there are guys who give very strong and cogent arguments that South Africa in 1910 wasn't a coherent uh, country in any way, and that's where our problem started, and that it should have broken up a long time ago with greater elements of federalism, like in, in Switzerland. That might happen, Alec. At some point, there'll be so much pressure on the uh, ANC or whichever government is still in power that the Cape is just going to say, we're going to break away, even if you don't want to break away. It could be very, very interesting politically uh, uh, as far as that's concerned. Certainly the feedback uh, from the Cape, and I'm sure you've been hearing a lot of this as well, is that with the looting and the riots that went on in KwaZulu-Natal, there just is no desire whatsoever to be paying for those kind of bills, which may this may not be the last time that we see that, given the inability of the Zulu police to stop other Zulu people from uh, doing the kind of things that they did uh, in the month of July. Yeah, I think the low level intensity uh, uprising that we've been seeing for a couple of years has just escalated to a new high level. I think it's going to happen again sporadically because I think disaffected communities have seen this is how you get reaction from government. So I think one can expect more of this happening in highly populated areas close to major uh, cities because the blueprint has been laid down, has been designed. That's how you almost force government to the table. You disrupt the traffic, the flow of food, uh, the flow of fuel, 
and uh, the harbours and a couple of strategic points, you know, airport or two station, and you effectively paralyse a country or a, or, a, or a region or a city by doing a couple of things. So this is by no means the last of this unrising. And as we said last time, government has shown itself to be totally incapable with the buses and the trains in the Western Cape, the taxi shootings, the burning of our trucks of more all these years, and we've seen it in Clarkstorp, Luchtenberg, those areas, when the local communities, as a consequence of infrastructural collapse, cannot speak to people in power, they they start uh, uprisings, they start burning stuff, and that gets the reaction from the politicians. I guess the the issue here, and it uh, it goes back to a book that I read some years ago by Moises Narim, Naim, uh, the end of power, it was called, uh, where he he then forecast. Uh, he used to be the Venezuelan um, minister of industry. He then went over and, and works uh, in a think tank in Washington, and uh, he he forecast back then that through technology we are going to get smaller and smaller within our areas of competence. And that states are going to are going to become have to become smaller because it's impossible to manage such huge tracts of land or geographically dispersed areas as South Africa is. And you wonder if uh, in 1910 you had said to the people there that uh, in a hundred years' time you will still be together and there would be a very different scenario if they would then have voted as they did for the Union of South Africa if they might not have asked for a very different uh, um, get-together, a federation perhaps like in Canada uh, rather than the union that, that we saw in South Africa, I suppose in a way imposed on the people at the time by the, the British colonialists. Well, if you go back in history, and we're going back very far back in the history books and to my high school years, if you read about the internal politics in South Africa around 1910, and even in 1948, I mean, the, the internal fights within the, let's call it the, the Afrikaans political parties, was how much control, centralized control or not, or should the provinces have more federal powers? And you had Yanis uh, Smuts versus the Hofmeyers. And in, even in those years, we have these debates about to what extent should the power come from the cent- center, like from Pretoria, and, and as you said, it's a very, very large country. And, 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 and I know that the, the off-fire was in favor of greater federal powers for the various provinces, and in the end it cost him his job and he was wounded. So it's a, it's a new debate in a new shape, but much more urgent than 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, the, another story that is uh, occupying our minds in this evening's program is the rise and rise of Capitec. Interesting to see, and we'll be talking with Kerry Fury, the chief executive, about this in a moment, that they're dri- now driving into the loyalty area uh, where they announced yesterday that if you go into Diskem or uh, I think it's called Baby City and you give a Capitec uh, card, you automatically, without signing up for anything, you automatically get a 2% cash back. They've got a similar thing going with Shell as well. So real simple a Capitex approach. But that is an organization that, that seems to have found a solution where others have been struggling in, in many, many uh, areas. Well, our large traditional banks still have the overhang of large and physical uh, networks, lots of investment in, in buildings and, 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 and branches and people behind the tellers. And here you have a relatively new bank, I think it's 20 years old now, run about 20 years old when it listed at 50 cents 2002 you know slap your face if only we knew uh, <laughs> uh, come with a new model it's like it's like uh, you have a you have a fleet of a thousand and here comes uber with a totally uh, model an app on a cell phone that people could not even dream of that you could use in the same type of business. And that's what rejuvenates business all the time. You get very smart people, and they bring technologies from an entirely, totally different space, and there you go. They change the rules of the game. They, uh, and Capitec has done it, and there's so many other examples that we've seen around the world in, in, in Israel, Switzerland, and particularly 
in the United States. You must know that if you start a business or you have a dominant market position in the United States, there are 10 other guys trying to break down your business model and come with a newer and a better and a more efficient model. That is the history of capitalism. And and, and we, we now see it with Capitech doing that to the local or the traditional banks. Competition works and it works for all. Magnus Haystack will be back again next week on Wednesday, though. Harry Faree joins us, Chief Executive of Capitec. I asked uh, if we could have a chat because of the acceleration now of your loyalty program. We've seen many other financial institutions doing that discovery with their shared value model. Uh, you seem to be ratcheting it up now. We do know about Shell that uh, you get 20 cents off per liter uh, if you use your Capitec card. You don't have to sign up with anything. But now you've expanded that into Dischem, which I think has got quite a number of other uh, partners, financial services partners as well. Where's this going, this whole loyalty program of yours? Yeah, well, we don't see it as a loyalty loyalty program because we actually hate loyalty programs because I think they overcomplicated and a very small portion of people are actually really understanding it and really using it. So what we're doing is to actually bring out a benefits program whereby, again, true to Capitec, um, everyone is treated exa- exactly the same. Uh, so there's no difference. Um, you get ex- exactly the same benefit as what I'm getting. And um, the second thing is to make it very simplistic. We've created a, a separate uh, savings account, which we call Live Better. So all the money that you earn um, through the benefits goes into your your savings account and you earn extra uh, interest rates on that. So it's it's the first steps. Um, we've uh, signed up about 1.6 million clients in about two to three weeks. Your rounding, you can, whenever you swipe your card, there's a rounding functionality as well as uh, interest. You move your interest into this uh, live better account. So it's, it's, it's part of the journey that, that we're starting to go on to. And you've only, you said, a couple of months that you've had this, 1.6 million clients. I suppose it shows the scale of uh, Capitec nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's about three, four weeks, um, and we just market it to our internal clients uh, or clients that's on the app. So if you open the app, you'll see Live Better, and it's amazing. Uh, the payouts that we've done so far is over 13 million. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a nice acceptance, and I think now – Shell one of these days will also be paid into this account. Uh, and then there's a couple of other, there's smaller uh, players uh, that's partnering with ourselves. But the whole purpose is that if you swipe, you get X percent off and that X percent goes into uh, this little better account. So it's a very simplistic manner to reward people whenever they use the capital card. So there's no signups, no selecting which uh, retailer but do you have uh, obviously Discam and Baby City? That's the latest yeah. uh, announcement that you've got, or, or your press release yesterday said that you'll get two percent cash back on those two. Do you have other retailers? Not other retailers. There's uh, about three or four that's very close to starting. It will start before the end of the year. But then there's a, cl- a, a couple of smaller companies that that we're also working with, and that's currently there. Uh, I think um, the one that's uh, that we had very good success with, with Greyhound. Unfortunately, they closed down. But when you swipe, you got a 15% discount. We've got another doctor that you get a certain discount. Um, there's a lot of educational programs that you get about 30, 40% off if you if you if you sign on to these education programs. So there's there's quite a wide variety of programs. But like I said, we're in the beginning phases, and we'll definitely grow it in, uh, grow it in the next couple of months and, and probably years. I know from visiting with you and and seeing how you guys have grown over the uh, past couple of decades that you've been really focused on data. Is that what uh, informs your decision on who to partner with? In other words, Shell rather than, say, Engine. Uh, was it because Capitec clients were more involved at Shell or do you do you start at the top and start negotiating down? Well, I think it's a combination of both. We've got very good understanding of where our clients swap. That helps us to go to that particular retailer and say, this is the current swaps, uh, Capitec swaps at your stores uh, and then to look at what business proposition we, we can get from. 
Um, and then the other ones is who will, who wants to partner with us? Uh, you know, it's a, uh, I think a very attractive option. We're sitting with 16.4 million clients and 16.4 million clients that we can talk directly to. So I think it's a big opportunity for retailers to direct these clients to their stores or to, to their offers. So I think it's, it's going to be quite exciting. Yeah. We haven't had a chance to pick up yet uh, together on, on what happened in KwaZulu-Natal. How many ATMs did you lose were, were literally pulled out of the wall as we saw many of those pictures on social media? Yeah, well, we lost about 70 branches um, and then we've lost about 280 ATMs. Um, and of the 200, of the 70 branches, uh, 60 of them was completely destroyed. So we need to really rebuild them from scratch. Um, average of branch takes six to eight weeks to, to rebuild. So you can do the sums. Um, it will take us a good six to seven to eight months to rebuild. And then there's about 10, 11 branches where the buildings that they are housed are structurally unsafe. So we first need to get engineers up um, to make certain that we can uh, rebuild. Maybe the, the buildings need to be demolished or something else needs to be done. And those branches will take 12 to 18 months. Just explain that. They structurally are unsafe now. What, what uh, did the looters do to... Uh, to, to put the buildings in those states? Well, if you look at uh, some of our ATMs were bombed uh, to get to the cash. Uh, and if you look at a bombed, bomb, yeah, um, because there's the ATM, they've got the ATM out. There's two ways to to get to the ATM. You either grind it open or you bomb it. Um, and if you bomb it, it's got uh, damage to the buildings. Um, so it's, it's actually quite scary to what they've done. It's not the major, major shopping malls. It's the smaller ones that they've... Um, uh, destroyed to a certain certain event. What do you mean by a bomb? Like bomb, something from the like military? Dynamite, where <laughs> you get that you explosive. And it didn't damage the ATM sufficiently to get rid of all the cash. But didn't don't you guys have a have yeah. some kind of a a, a spray that yeah, that you can't use in. the cash in the ATM? Yeah, you've got dye stain in. So if you bomb it, uh, then it uh, dye the notes. And you've probably seen or heard uh, in the newspapers, uh, there's a lot of dye notes that's in circulation. Uh, and it's coming from the different banks, because all the banks are using dye So that's really dumb. You're going to go and blow up an ATM. Yeah. Perhaps uh, you, you cause a lot of damage. You get the notes out, but they all died. So you can't use them. Yeah, 100%. Or, or, or are people actually accepting those notes? No, 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 no. Um, you will maybe get away uh, at a retailer if it's slightly died uh, or somebody you give it to a friend or something like that. But when you bring it into a bank, we won't accept it. So, Harry, what happens now to the cost of all of this? It sounds like it's a big number for Capitec. Yeah, you know, luckily you're covered by Sasria. Are you? Last we looked at Sasria, they... They only had six billion rand in their accounts. Uh, most of the money had been moved off to government years ago, uh, and the the numbers that that were being bandied around certainly just for KZN was twenty billion. So yeah. surely there'll be a big knock there. Yeah, I think that's well. That's where uh, uh, we worked very closely with the Minister of Finance and said you need to support uh, Sasria. That's why the government has given the undertaking that they will support. Because we need, forget about the banks, we need to get all businesses up as quickly as possible. Uh, so you need to make certain that the claims are processed very quickly and that the people get their money and that they can really stop. Um, so I think we're quite fine from, from this unrest. But I think if there's a second wave or a third wave, because you're depleting such as funds, um, then it's going to be quite, quite interesting. So I think that's going to be challenging uh, to look at that. You're comfortable that everybody who had a business that was damaged by the riots and the looting is going to be refunded through Sasria, which itself is going to maybe claw back some of that 50 billion rand that government took, what was it, 20 years ago, because we were supposed to be a democracy and not have riots anymore. But you're warning that if it happens again, watch out. If I look at uh, surveys that, that was done by the banks about between, let's say, plus minus 90 to 95% of the people has got SASRIA uh, cover. And I'm talking about the formal sector. I'm not talking about the informal sector. 
I think the majority will be fine. It's a matter now going through the claims and pay it out as quickly as possible. I'm concerned if, if there's a second or third, third unrest uh, because then Sassari has depleted. And the shopping centres where your branches, when you say they've been put out of service, what exactly happened? Because presumably uh, the thieves weren't able to get into safes where the money is kept. No, uh, but they just they destroyed everything. Uh, and I took uh, a lot of the TV screens and computer screens. They can actually not do anything with it because it's only a screen because the computers are working from, from head office. It's not working from the branch itself. But yeah, everything was, was, was taken and literally destroyed. There's nothing left of the branch. So you basically, yeah, you were rebuilding everything. The furniture was demolished. The back office was demolished. The control centers were demolished. So it's quite sad to see. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Patrick Melly joins us now. He is with the Cape Independence Movement. Patrick, we've spoken to quite a few people about the uh, proposed independence of the Western Cape, and I'd, I'd be very interested to, to try and find out who sits where. Now, uh, there is, for instance, Hein Marx, who's from the United Liberty Alliance. Have they got anything to do with you? Uh, I am in contact with him, and I do work with him, but I also work with quite a few other people as well. So, um, you know, we all tend to, to varying degrees work with each other. And, uh, but the big thing is we have a different approaches to the whole idea of Cape independence. You know, there's some people who believe in a referendum should be held. Others don't believe a referendum is necessary and, uh, and so on. And uh, so, yeah, as I said, there are different approaches by different people. Uh, and then Phil uh, uh, Craig, is he part of your organization? Because he's also no, Cape but I do. I am in communication with him quite frequently. So why don't you guys all get together and, uh, and speak with one voice? Um, well, as I said, you know, there are different approaches. And uh, we, we are, I think we are moving to a situation whereby we basically um, sort of coalescing into two distinct groups and the the one group is uh, consists of those people who would like a referendum and the other group is those people who prefer not to have a referendum and uh, prefer to pursue other means legal means of course you know everybody this is one thing everybody is agreed on one thing Uh, whatever we do must be Legal. Let's just find out a little bit more about the Cape Independence Movement. Uh, how, how big are you? How, how, what constituency do you have? Uh, well, we don't have a very big uh, membership because we are not, uh, we're more of an advocacy group than anything else. So we are more relying more upon other groups and organizations to, um, uh, to do a lot of the work. Okay, so what is it that you do? Well, what we do is we try to influence people. We talk to people, we talk to groups, etc., and uh, promoting the idea of Cape independence. On for what pur- on what purpose? What's your argument? Well, the, the argument is that uh, number one, we want to uh, retain the Western Cape as a first world society and you know let's let's be honest the rest of south africa can no longer be called a first world society if ever it could be called a first world society uh things are disintegrating and uh you know we all know that services are very bad in other parts of the country uh you know the 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 proverbial potholes are not filled and the robots don't work and all the rest of it we hear about you know, hospitals been in a bad state, and administration is 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 bad, and uh, there's loads and loads of corruption, and we don't really have all those issues down here in the Cape, and we want to retain it that way. We don't want to see it go the same way as the rest of South Africa. But surely, the rest of South Africa could only improve from the. A very low base that it's at now, particularly after the awful month of July. Yeah, but how long is it going to take? Is is it going to take fifty years, a hundred years? 
you know, what do you do in the meantime? <laughs> well, okay. So your philosophy is the Western Cape is a well-governed, great place. You, you don't want it to get contaminated. Am I reading you correctly? Correct. Absolutely correct. Are you economically, or the research that your uh, Cape Independence Movement has done, uh, are you economically sustainable in the Western Cape without the rest of South Africa? Well, you know, there are two ways to approach this. First of all, if you look at what is happening in the rest of South Africa, how viable is the rest of South Africa going to be? If, if you are a minority businessman, how... Um, how are you going to ensure that your business survives? Uh, quite apart from all the riots that we've had recently, uh, have a look at all the restrictions and all the laws and regulations, etc., that the ANC has come up with over the years and is coming up with more and more every year. Um, you know, it's South Africa is not is 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 no longer the wonderful place to do business in anymore. Whereas the Western Cape. Uh, is a good place to do business in. And this is the reason why so many business people have already relocated from, let us say, Gauteng to the Western Cape. Now, obviously, not all businesses can relocate. Uh, but those who can relocate, um, quite a few of them have already done so, and others are uh, contemplating making the move. You do know that South Africa relies heavily on mining and there aren't too many mines in the area that you're looking at. And that's really what I'm getting at. What would the Western yes, Cape okay. economy look right. like? Now, I, yes. Okay. Now, when we talk about the Cape, um, the Western Cape, uh, we shouldn't just be looking at the Western Cape, although initially we're talking about the Western Cape, but if, ultimately we're talking about a much bigger area which would incorporate parts of the Northern Cape and possibly even adjacent areas in the Eastern Cape. And uh, as you know, there are a lot of mineral resources in the Northern Cape, which could be, um, and, uh, and those areas where they are found could easily be incorporated into an expanded Cape. But why wouldn't they rather go uh, to also, Namibia? No, why, why, sorry, uh, Patrick, why would they yes. want to side with you? They could... If they were to break away, why wouldn't they go to Namibia, which is also an independent uh, option? Uh, you, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of no, different historically, hurdles. Historically, mm-hmm. yeah, please historically carry they are part of the Cape. Okay. You know, the, uh, the so-called Northern Cape is just a, um, is just a political uh, invention um, that they came along in 1994. Uh, before 1994, there was no such province as the Northern Cape. It was part and parcel of the Cape. And those people still, in many ways, feel that they are part of the Cape. So, so they don't feel part of Namibia. Um, coming back to the mineral resources, you know, let us not forget that there is the potential of huge oil deposits, oil and gas deposits off the West Coast and off the South Coast. And um, <clears throat> and if these deposits are ultimately exploited, they could be of enormous financial benefit to an independent Western Cape. But they would also be of enormous financial benefit to South Africa, which would make your journey to independence presumably a lot more difficult if, uh, if you are... More, even more valuable to the central government. So I, I'm just trying to understand how you would achieve this. Mm. Um, <clears throat> we are working on plans and uh, we will be announcing them before the end of the year. Plans based on a legal route to independence for the Western Based States. on a legal route to independence, yes. On South African law, on the constitution? Well, we will we'll also be relying upon international law too. It's it's very similar to what Hein Marx was saying at the United Limit, uh, Liberty Alliance that he was he was wanting or he believes that international law says if one other country uh, is accepts your independence, then legally you can go ahead with it. It sounds it sounds a, a rather flimsy argument, but is it it one that you've also based yours on? 
I yes, but I think we can go a little bit further than that. Uh, you know, the thing is that you, if you are going to rely, uh, you know, upon substantial international support right at the beginning, you are going to have a bit of a problem. But at some stage, you know, one is going to have to take up the attitude, present everybody with a fate accompli. And the riots uh, and looting of the past month, have has that seen uh, a strengthening of your resolve in the independence movement? Absolutely. I, um, the feeling is that uh, the riots that occurred last month are just a precursor to uh, worse that is still to come. And, uh, you know, there, there is a feeling that um, the ANC is going to split and, uh, and it's going to be a bit of a violent split and uh, it's going to impact upon the country very dramatically. And uh, we would prefer to be quarantined from all that, all that chaos that's going to result from the ANC splitting up and just the general deterioration in the country. I'm Justin O. Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Anthony Clark, better known as Small Talk Daily on social media and a veteran JSE small and mid-cap analyst. Anthony, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Curro's trading statement, can you provide some background on Curro, the service it offers, and its target market within the higher education space? Yeah, hi there. Thanks for the opportunity. It's uh, uh, nice to be on Biz News. Uh, now, Curro is probably one of the oldest established private schools um, in the country. There's only basically two or three. For many, many years, it was Advertech, which is best known for its high-end schools, um, such as Crawford College. And there's, there's some private interests like Redham, which are, again, very well known. And probably about 15 years ago, um, PSG Group, having met the founder of Curra Holdings, a gentleman called Dr. Chris van der Merver, um, who was operating a small school in Durbanville uh, in a church, basically saw the potential of affordable private schooling for the masses. So PSG, I'm probably going back now at least 10 or 12 years, paid 50 million rand for a 50% stake of Curra Holdings. And at that stage, they only had free schools and a few thousand learners. As it stands here today, we have a market capitalization of uh, some 7 billion rand, PSG remain the dominant shareholder, and we have uh, about 66,000 learners across 200 separate schools in the country, showing you that the, uh, the development of private education in this country, the affordable space, and when I say affordable, they have different categories, ranging from 1,500 rand a month up to 8,000 rand a month. There remains a consistent demand for private quality education, given the fact the state system isn't as... Um, Good as it used to be. On to the trading statement. The company reported a reasonable significant drop in headline earnings versus the prior period, with headline earnings being the primary indicator of performance for JSC-listed counters. The market has reacted negatively to the announcement, with the share down around 4% today. Can you delve into the numbers in further detail and to whether the market is looking too much into the drop in earnings? Yeah, again, I saw the uh, trading statement this morning. I read it. Uh, it's uh, incredibly detailed, uh, which I expected it to be. Um, you know, the share price, as you said, at one point, it was, the stock was down about 6%. Uh, it's now down about 4.3% to 11 Rand 20. Um, to me, it came as no surprise. You know, the small to mid cap space uh, is generally characterized by a lack of information uh, to the wider audience. So you physically actually have to delve a lot deeper into the underlying narrative uh, of a company to ascertain what's going on. And in Kuro's case, uh, I've been the prime analyst of that stock since even before it was founded, uh, because it was a, a, an asset in, hidden inside PSG, which I've covered for 20 years. And then every company every year has an annual general meeting where shareholders and analysts and anyone can, has the right to ask questions as to how the business was doing. Uh, the company generally puts out a, a trading update or and or uh, an update on the preceding events, and that information is available on their website. In this year's AGM, which happened, I think, in, uh, in mid-June from memory, which I participated in, nothing that was detailed in today's trading statement is new. They indicated that there's been uh, you know, issues with bad and doubtful debts. They indicated that COVID from last year to this year 
has caused significant uh, disruption and costs to their business. As one would imagine, you know, children are not going to school, they're working from home. And a significant part of Kuro's revenue and additional profits comes from providing ancillary services, aftercare, bus services, hostel accommodation, etc., etc. So children are not at school, they aren't using those services, which means they've lost about 300 million rand during the course of a year. The other big issue is in August last year, Kura had a very large rights issue to raise 1.5 billion rand to help repay a huge debt pile which it had built up over the years. So on a like-for-like basis, a significant proportion of this HEPS downgrade is because there are 45% more shares in issue in this period compared to last year. And we've had COVID and the schools have restarted again. And then we've had further lockdowns, as you know, which has impacted the entire schooling sector. So this to me is not, un- is not unsurprising. And it was all detailed in the pre-statement and at the AGM. But the market being the market, the, uh, one they, once they see something in black and white, they say, oh, there's, there's a shock. Not realizing that this news literally came out, uh, I'm a, sorry, I'm on the tw- 22nd of June. There we are. If you knew where to look, you could find it. And Anthony, educational technology is one of the niche disruptive industries that has been accelerated due to the onset of COVID-19. Do you believe Cura will be on the forefront of disruption within the higher education space, specifically in South Africa, and this creating a competitive advantage for the business going forward? Yes, I think, I think most of the private schools, I know that Advertech, Redham and Cura Holdings have all issued their learners with tablets or PCs and or, you know, the varying bandwidth and Wi-Fi connections to enable the learners during this difficult period uh, to actually continue their studies at home. And there will always be an element uh, who will not wish to go back to school. They'll be very happy learning at home. But again, again, we forget that school is not just about learning. It's physically about engaging uh, with other learners. It's building social networks. It's building friends. It's the basis of your entire life ahead of you. So if, you, if you're just stuck at home learning from a book or online, the very um, interpersonal skills that you would learn from school, discipline, for example, friendships, and, and all the nuances that goes with a, with a young person's life is lost. So I think going forward, I see online learning as being far more prevalent in what I would call the tertiary space, where you finished your school, you're considering going to university or to a college and perhaps you don't want to go to, you know, to Vitz or UCT or Stellenbosch or, or whatever and you decide to do, to do your course online and maybe occasionally go into varsity a couple of days a week. So the likes of a Stadio, uh, which has an online uh, offering where over 80% of their 36,000 learners learn online. So I'd say it's more prevalent in the tertiary space not in the primary or secondary space where I think there's still a need for engagement physically with, a, with, a, with an educator and, of course, the social experience of being at school and playing rugby and going swimming, etc., etc. And since listing, there's been a lot of excitement in PSG back Cairo, but the company has struggled to live up to these expectations. The share price performance over the last few years is testament to that. What's gone wrong? Uh, your, your words are very kind. Uh, when Kuro listed, it listed via an introduction uh, on the Altex market at four rand a share. I remember it, I remember it clearly. Uh, I was told by a couple of institutions when I pitched the offer to them, uh, they, kicked, they physically kicked me out of a building saying that at four rand it was overpriced and it was only worth two. Within a matter of years, Kuro's share price from a four rand listing hit an all-time high of nearly 60 rand. Uh, sadly, about four to five years ago, a, a series of missteps uh, inside Kuro due to rapid expansion, uh, them overpromising, uh, you know, a combination of factors led to a period of very disappointing results performances from Kuro. And the share price, as you know, ha- has, has sunk dramatically. At its lowest point during the COVID sell-off in March 2020, the share price had a low from memory of 4 and 62. So it basically wiped out 10 years of capital growth. Now, in the last 12 months after COVID and the recovery in the economy and the market, we're now back to, as I said, 11 Rand 20. But uh, again, just to compare, on a year-to-date basis, I checked before you came on, Kuro year-to-date for 2021 is up 23%. Advertech is up 53%. It's at a far more resilient performance 
On a one-year basis, Kuro is up 33%, which is not bad. But Avatec is up 196%, showing you the quality of earnings that are delivered by Avatec compared to Kuro. And the market is rewarded the company by significantly increasing its share price because the earnings predictability and the underlying growth of the company has been significantly better than Kuro. So as it stands right now, Kuro, uh, as I've written in many, many reports, uh, if I was writing a report card, I'd say they must try harder and they wouldn't get a gold star next to their report. They might get a C plus, whereas Avatech would get an A. Today is Tuesday, August 3rd, and this is your FT News Briefing. North American wildfires are doing damage to companies' carbon emission goals. And Goldman Sachs is going to scale back on its gangbusters asset management business. Plus, the airline industry is surging back after getting hit hard by the pandemic. But are the good times here to stay? One of the key questions really is going to be business travel. How much of those fly-in, fly-out trips are going to be replaced by virtual conferencing, which has worked so well during the crisis? And obviously, that will be a significant problem for airlines. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. When it comes to fighting climate change, forests are important. Not just because they absorb carbon dioxide, but also because big corporations buy forests to offset their own emissions to meet their net zero goals. But the recent wildfires in North America makes the reliability of this approach questionable. Just take two forestry projects bought by Microsoft and BP that recently set ablaze. The FT's Camilla Hodson says we might see more of this happen, too. This is something that people are really worried about. As climate change accelerates, wildfires are likely to become more common uh, and also more intense in certain parts of the world. And that includes the west coast of the U.S., where quite a lot of offset projects are based. So the concern is that there'll be more forests that are burned, and that will mean that more offsetting projects are impacted. So, Camilla, have Microsoft and BP figured out what to do next? No, I think it's quite early days still in terms of assessing the extent of the damage and what to do about it. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that offsetting projects will contribute a proportion of the credits that they generate to something called a buffer pool, which kind of works like an insurance mechanism. And that means that in the case of a fire or if a project for some other reason doesn't deliver all the carbon benefits that it claims that it will, then the credits that are in the buffer pool can be cancelled. For these two projects that have been impacted in the US, the concern there is that in the case of a really extreme fire, the buffer pool just might not be big enough to cover all of the damage, particularly if you're seeing damage across more than one project. Buying forests and just offsetting in general are incredibly popular tools for companies that are trying to map out a net zero game plan. Will wildfires and climate change impact their approach? Yeah, I think businesses are becoming more aware of the various pitfalls that are associated with offsetting. There's been a lot of criticism of offsetting in general over the years, not just because of things like wildfires or problems that can occur, but also more substantially about the kind of some of the fundamentals to do with how these projects are run and how you calculate carbon savings. So there is a lot of talk at the moment about how best to use them when it's appropriate. People will say best practice is something along the lines of a company reduces emissions as much as it possibly can. And if there are some residual emissions that for some reason they just can't get rid of, then at that point, perhaps it's appropriate to buy offsets to compensate. But it's really an unregulated space at the moment. And that's not the format that all companies will be choosing to use. Some will be more strict about it than others. Camilla Hodson is the FT's climate reporter. Goldman Sachs made a cool $5.1 billion off asset management last quarter, largely on the back of investments the bank made with its own capital. It was an all-time high for Goldman, but that might be as good as it gets for the bank for a while. Goldman is trying to scale back the investments it makes on its own by nearly 20%. Instead, it wants to earn more asset management fees by investing money for clients, such as pension funds and wealthy individuals. The move is meant to make two types of people happy, investors and regulators. Goldman hopes that these strategies will boost its stock price for investors, 
and it hopes that it'll lower capital demands from regulators. That second one is a big one for Goldman. The Federal Reserve requires that Goldman hold a larger amount of capital relative to risk-weighted assets than other U.S. banks. The Delta variant of the coronavirus has led to a lot of restrictions being put back into place. Several states have introduced vaccine requirements for state employees, and other places have brought back rules regarding mask wearing. But the Delta variant hasn't dampened the enthusiasm of airline executives. If you remember, airlines were one of the worst sectors to be hit by the pandemic, but there's been a slow recovery going on in large parts of the industry. Philip Georgiadis is the FT's acting transport correspondent, and he's been talking to industry executives to gauge their level of optimism. He joins me now to discuss this. So, Philip, do we know how much airlines have lost since the pandemic more or less shut down international travel? A lot. It's hard really to think of an industry that's been worse hit by the pandemic and all the travel restrictions. A ballpark figure would be roughly that global airlines lost about $125 billion US dollars last year, and they're estimated by their trade body, IATA, to be on track to lose about another 50 billion or so this year. So it's getting better, but still, these are huge losses for an industry that suffers from a profitability problem under normal circumstances. But that outlook really differs around the world, largely from how strict the travel restrictions are and whether there's been a bit of a recovery in travel over the last six months or so. Yeah, let's talk about the recovery. Where are we seeing the most promising signs at the moment? A lot of it is correlated around those countries that are fortunate enough to have high vaccination rates. And on top of that, strong domestic markets, which of course mean that people don't have to travel through borders when they fly. The US is leading the way. Its domestic market has really roared back this year. I was just looking through the data and around 2 million passengers a day are going through US airports at the moment. And that's not far off 2019 levels. And The situation is also getting a little bit better in Europe. The EU in early July introduced a digital health pass, and that has uh, led to a rebound in travel. When you speak to airlines such as Ryanair or EasyJet, they say they're really seeing a very strong recovery in Europe in short-haul leisure. Basically, people either taking a summer holiday or getting that trip in to see their family that they might have postponed for more than a year. There's a recovery of sorts in the UK, which hasn't been helped by ever-shifting travel rules. There are also expensive tests that people have to take whenever they come back into the UK. So people are beginning to travel, but it's a lot slower than in the European Union. But what about long-term passenger demand? Do people in the industry believe that things will return to pre-pandemic levels once all travel restrictions are, are completely eased? Or are they looking at something different here? Well, for the last year, airline bosses have been insisting that the demand for travel will not be dimmed by the crisis. Once we're out of it, once those travel restrictions have gone, they insist things will snap back. And actually, they're quite excited by the fact that bookings are beginning to prove that. I suppose one of the key questions really is going to be business travel. How much of those fly-in, fly-out trips are going to be replaced by virtual conferencing, which has worked so well during the crisis? And obviously, that will be a significant problem for airlines if even a small chunk of that is lost because they're so profitable on that. CFOs are likely to be budget conscious and companies are also increasingly aware of climate change. So there are a lot of questions for the industry. But at the moment, I feel that executives will just hold on to any positivity and any signs of green shoots that they can find. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the post-pandemic industry. Um, You know, that might be a long way off with the Delta variant. But, you know, should that day come, what might airlines look like, Phil? Well, I think it's hard to overestimate what a seismic shock this has been for the industry. It's greatest ever crisis. So I suppose one of the key questions is going to be consolidation, particularly in Europe. Will the stronger players with the good balance sheet and low costs look to expand at the expense of their weaker rivals? And if you speak to someone like Michael O'Leary, the very bullish chief executive of Ryanair, he'll say that Europe will follow the US and you'll have consolidation and end up with four or five major players. I guess. Another question is profitability, because the industry has taken on a huge amount of debt and it's going to have problems with balance sheets for some time to come. Philip Georgiadis is the FT's acting transport correspondent. Thanks, Philip. Thank you. And before we go, El Salvador is set to become the first country in the world to allow Bitcoin to pay for everything. We mean everything. 
haircuts, taxes, grocery shopping. But the International Monetary Fund says there are concerns with a country using cryptocurrencies. The IMF wrote in a recent blog post that widespread use of cryptocurrencies would threaten macroeconomic stability. They also warned that crypto could harm a country's financial integrity because it's often used for shady activities. Now, the IMF didn't call out El Salvador by name in this blog post, but it is in talks with the country over a $1 billion loan. And this suggests that El Salvador's move to crypto could complicate things. Thanks for being with us tonight. From me, Nadja Swat, and the Biz News team, we'll be back at the same time tomorrow. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.